Fish farming, or aquaculture to give it its proper name, is one of the newest industries we have in this country. In 1979, the total exports were just over £1 million, and there were only a handful of people involved. Now, five years later, there are over 100 fish farms of various kinds, giving work to several hundred people, and that's mainly in remote coastal areas. Exports are set to top £10 million this year, with salmon as the biggest category. One man who's watched these exciting developments with interest is Arthur Reynolds, editor of the Fisherman's Journal, The Skipper. The Japanese really started this business of, of, of farming their fish, and they are very well advanced in it. They've even got to the stage of, of farming eels, a very difficult one, and they've also got to the stage of farming shrimp, and that's another great achievement. But in Europe, we have concentrated largely on shellfish, first of all, because that's been going on for centuries in France and Spain, a simple process of, of keep getting the, the small small um, shellfish, putting them on the bottom and letting them grow in the right place and culling them as their stock comes on. This is a developed business. But the more interesting aspect and the one that has some considerable potential in Ireland is one that's well advanced in Norway and that is salmon farming or salmonids because trout also can be farmed. And the interesting thing is that um, in terms of trout farming uh, we could use our river systems if we want. Now if you think about it, Ireland has probably 600 or more good rivers suitable for trout farming. Denmark has four. We have about four trout farms and we have 600 rivers. They have 600 farms and four rivers. So you can see the potential. Now, when you get come to salmon, it is particularly interesting because there are social implications in this which we have to consider in Ireland. And these are based on the fact that the wild salmon catch from the North Atlantic salmon is extremely important to small communities, particularly places like Donegal, Aranmore Island lives on salmon. Many parts of Donegal, the people couldn't make up their year's economy if they hadn't got salmon. We have a coastline which uh, has many bays. Uh, we also have exposed coastlines on the west coast of Ireland. On the east coast, we don't have so many bays, uh, nor do we have... Um, areas of water on the east coast which are particularly suitable for fish farming but there are places in Donegal and Cork and in Kerry and some parts of Galway where fish farms could be established. Well one such place is Mulroy Sea Lock in northeast Donegal reckoned to be about the best bay we have for salmon farming. The ESB have a salmon farm here from which they produce about a hundred tons of salmon a year. In fact the ESB first got involved in salmon culture by restocking rivers affected by their hydroelectric schemes. And together with Guinnesses and the Department of Fisheries, they've pioneered the techniques in Ireland. But Mulroy Bay is home to another and bigger salmon farm, that's Fanad Fisheries, which is the biggest and most successful private farm in the country. It was started in 1979 by a Meath-born biology teacher, Tony Fox. Tony, who'd been teaching for several years, always had an ambition to get into fish farming. And five years ago, he got a group of Dublin and Donegal investors together to launch the venture. 
How have they progressed since? We started with the, the Norwegians in 1981. We imported eggs in that year. And we also imported smolts. And we did the same the following year. We're still importing eggs, but it wasn't until 1984 that we took our first harvest of salmon. And uh, we exceeded our, um, our predictions on that uh, by sort of uh, 20 or 30 percent. And uh, this sort of uh, gave us a good sort of moral boost, really. We're now in the middle of our second harvest. So it appears, looking here on the ground, that you know we look as if we're established, but in fact we've only, we're only in the middle of our second harvest, and it's still very early days. here. This is the fresh water, the beginning where the, the eggs are put into troughs and the wild conditions are simulated as near as possible in that the eggs are in the troughs are exposed to a continuous low current of fresh water. Um, the eggs are stripped from the broodstock um, the eggs from the, from the female are mixed with the milt from the male in, a, in a, some sort of a clean bucket or basin. Uh, they're then subsequently placed into troughs and uh, temperature dependent, they hatch here uh, over a period of a couple of months. here um, this is about a month later is that right no these ones here in fact hatched last week um, these now are at yolk sac fry uh, the eggs have hatched the fry have come out um, you have basically a little fish sitting on top of a big food store and uh, as the the fry develop the food store is used up and the big yolk sac underneath is gradually absorbed uh, until you reach a stage where it is completely gone and the fish then become more active, they sort of swim up towards the surface and they will consider eating uh, artificial solid food that we supply them with. That's a very delicate stage in the life cycle, getting them, changing them from their yolk sac over to uh, the commercial food. Well, from the eggs just back there up to this stage, what sort of mortality would you expect? Well, it's, it's quite variable, but we would hope to have maybe 5%, something like that. So 95% would survive? Well, 95% would survive to this stage. We would hope to have maybe a, uh, something like an 80% overall survival would be quite satisfactory. And what is it in the wild? Well, it's a, again, it's, it's very variable, uh, but I think uh, the best they get in the wild is, uh, well, round about sort of 5%, and it's generally lower than that. 
Well, this tank here is what, about eight foot long and uh, a foot wide and six inches deep. How many fry are there there now? Well, approximately 30,000. Um, at this stage, the fry can, can live fairly close together. Uh, in fact, they're happier, as you can see, in a big bunch. Uh, and uh, with the numbers that are here, it's survival, good survival, is, is quite uh, on the cards. So of those 30,000, how many will make it to the, the table uh, in some posh restaurant? <laughs> well, uh, we would hope again that maybe 85%. In Norway, a remarkable thing has taken place in farming. First of all, they have deep fjords where water temperatures are stable. That's an advantage. They have many of them and sheltered fjords because you cannot put expensive pens in the sea in an exposed place where a storm would come. It could wreck the, the whole lot and you'd lose a lot. But Norway now has 400 salmon farms and applications in for another 100. This is very significant. They're producing around... Um, 20,000 tonnes of salmon already a year. I think I'm right in that figure, but they're working to a target backed up by state aid and investment, mostly in, in, in research rather than cash grants. They, are now set a tar they have now set a target to the end of the century of 200,000 tonnes. Now, it is estimated at the moment that the salmon farms in Norway are turning out fish of greater value than the famous Norwegian cod catch one which helped to build the whole economy of that country and, and supported hundreds of communities there as the leading fishing nation in Europe, which they are. So Norway, therefore, is gradually coming over and turning to salmon. And they're doing it very successfully, and they're learning how to breed the stock. That is, you have to start off with very small fish. They come from hatcheries. And those small fish that come from hatcheries have to be of the right breed because you have to overcome certain problems. At some stages, the salmon want to migrate. They want to leave the coast of Ireland. They want to clear off to Greenland. This is their habit. You have to discourage that or else, if you don't, their growing cycle will be interrupted and you'll find it difficult to breed them. But the Norwegians have found out ways even how to produce all males or all females according to what they want. We started with trout and we found that basically they weren't going to pay the bills so we decided that uh, the only thing we could do was change to um, something that maybe would. At this time it was impossible in Ireland to obtain smolts for growing salmon and so we decided the best thing to do was to seek uh, technical and financial assistance outside of Ireland. and. We went looking and considering where the best place to go. It was fairly obvious that Norway was the most highly developed salmon farming country. And so we uh, phoned up the leading salmon producer in Norway and uh, we got a favorable response. I think we were quite lucky in that. And uh, we forged links then with the this Bergen Salmon Farming Group, A.S. Movi, and um, they have, we've had a tremendous working relationship with them, and uh, we have, I think, successfully had this uh, transfer of technology from Norway to Ireland. Uh, so we now are farming salmon in the sort of Norwegian style, uh, as opposed to a lot of the other Irish farms who are more influenced by Scotland.
I think it's fairly well known that the Chinese started more than 2,000 years ago and they developed fish which would feed on rice grains which could be released into the fields, the flooded paddy fields, which would pick up stray grains of rice that had fallen to the bottom. The fish in digging for these automatically then um, uh, ploughed the fields for them in the sense that it overtowed it. Uh, you know, and the f working fish was doing two jobs. Then the p pond was drained and they'd catch all the fish as they got out. Also, the Chinese did another very clever thing. Uh, as you know, they're famous for silk for thousands of years. Well, they used to plant the um, mulberry bushes over the ponds. And do by doing that, the droppings from the, from the uh, silkworms would help to feed the fish. So they had a perfect cycle, and that's uh, one of the origins. And the Chinese now, as a matter of fact, are very big in fish farming because they have understood it for so long. But it's significant, and that's what I think the origin is. these tanks are to receive the first feeding fry that will come out of the hatchery and uh, they will remain uh, in these tanks for a period of uh, several months and they subsequently then will be split as the fish grow in size. So these tanks here are three meters uh, in diameter, they're heavy duty fiberglass, they're about one and a half meters deep. They're Norwegian design uh, but made in Donegal. Um, there's a factory over in Annegree that made all the tanks here and uh, we're reasonably happy they've done a good job. There's a, the advantage of fiberglass is the smooth inner surface that allows itself to be maintained in a, fairly, a high sort of state of hygiene clean. In other words, there aren't any crevices for uh, organisms to lodge in. So cleanliness is, is a continuous concern. I see the tanks are covered with nets. What's the purpose of that? Well, there's twofold. One is the off chance that you might get a predator going into the cage after a fish. Uh, the other is the main thing is to stop fish from jumping out. When the fish smolt, they become uh, very active. Uh, they, they jump around inside the tank. Uh, and unless you have a net on top, they actually jump out onto the ground and then you sort of lose a fish for everyone that jumps out, so we can't afford that. Okay, we'll move along now to the, the next tank. Um, this is what? Uh, these are later? Yes, these are larger tanks. These fish were eggs one year ago. Uh, they're now 40 to 50 grams. Uh, they're just in the process of smultification, which is a sort of physiological change whereby the uh, young salmon is getting ready to go to sea. And uh, this is manifests itself in a silvering up of the scales and loosening of the scales. Um, it's absolutely critical at this stage that the fish are not handled uh, in excess in any way. And uh, if the scales are lost, it, it uh, opens um, gaps in the, sh the shield that protect the fish against disease and it's very, very easy to lose fish at this particular stage in their development. One of the tricks in, in or the sort of goals in freshwater salmon farming is to produce a smolt that's ready to go to sea in one year. 
Uh, if they don't make it in one year, then they have to wait for a second year. Uh, so it's very much uh, beneficial uh, and in terms of using the resources of the uh, unit here and the tank space that the, we get the maximum number of fish to smolt in the first year. Once the fish have got over the first feeding stage, once they have become happy with the food that we're offering to them, uh, the fish then go completely onto automatic feeding. And uh, the, the food that we feed them is of various sizes. The smaller the fish, the smaller the grain size of the food. And uh, as the fish develops, um, we feed them larger uh, size food. But initially, the, the size of the food is dust, to very tiny. So they're ready to go to, to the cages at this stage now, are they? Uh, no, they have about another three weeks. Another three weeks, I see. So they're hauled out of here and they're... No, they're the, well, this is one of the uh, sophistications of this hatchery, in that uh, we can get them out of here without uh, doing anything with them, in that we can uh, transfer them from the tank to the channel, and from the channel to a cage, without actually handling them. The conversion rate on the food is extremely high, even more efficient than chicken. And it's well known that a chicken is a very good converter of food into meat. But the salmon uh, um, and the fish farms score <coughs> on being even better. And of course, the food is expensive. You're feeding protein to get protein. And as any farmer knows, when you get down to putting in the fish meal into the animal, you're getting to the expensive level. So. What you have to do with this is we have to find a way of getting cheaper food. The Norwegians have it because they have a lot of waste fish which can be ground up and minced and turned into pellets which are fed to the salmon while they're in these um, pens. Now, there's a very important part of this and almost I want to draw a line from what I'm talking about and what's the next stage. This is a more interesting stage of it and this is called salmon ranching. Um, you breed your salmon you keep them in your ponds, in rivers, in fresh water. You don't put them in the sea. When they get to the stage of migration, you flavour the water in which the salmon is in. And it can be flavoured with um, something quite harmless. Um, cochineal, um, licorice is one of the things you believe it or not. <laughs> I heard the Icelanders have a type of perfume. Yes, that's it. right, something like that. And they treat the salmon uh, in the, they live, keep the salmon in this flavoured water, then release them into the sea. And the salmon return, because they always return to the same river. And when they come back, they are caught by waiting traps. Now, actually, the, the ESB has been a pioneer in this and has been doing it in the Shannon very successfully. Now it is a worldwide thing and it is expanding rapidly. Even the most recent one, built in Iceland, uh, doesn't have a river. They didn't have a river, but they bored wells to produce the water and, and made an access to the sea for the fish down a pipe. So it's a particularly interesting one. And then, of course, when the salmon swim back, the pipe is um, coming the wrong way, is, is a trap for them. But this is an advance because the salmon is going to sea and is feeding off Greenland on food provided by natural resources. And as it's provided, you don't have to pay the food costs.
When the salmon are a year old and have smolted, they're ready to go to the sea cages. These cages are about 100 metres offshore in 100 feet of water. Ursula Cullinan is in charge of this part of the operation. particular cages, these Norwegian cages, they're very, very much stronger, altogether larger than the original little wooden cages. They're 11.3 by 11.3 and then 7 metres deep. So 6 metres underwater, there's a metre above water level. Particularly in these older fish, they tend to show, um, you can see they're all swimming around happily enough in the, in, in the one direction. There are very few swimming against the others. And the younger fish tend to um, swim about in a great big you know, mix, mix match, but uh, these fish are, are shoaling. Um, and you can see that they're, they're blending very well with their background. Um, it's, kind of, it's a good sign to see them like this. Healthy, happy fish are well shoaling and um, merging with the, with the colour of the water. Any that you would see hanging around the edges of the cage or um, looking, looking very dark, um, would not be um, altogether healthy. Well, you can see we have um, two people feeding on this site. Um, the, the idea is that they, they um, fill their buckets, which hold about which hold seven kilos of food. They fill these buckets from the um, the big, the large black refuse bins, and they scatter the pellets using a a scoop using these plastic scoops scattered the pellets over the surface of the water. As a, the major advantage of hand feeding is that over automatic feeding is that you can actually see whether the fish are taking the food or not and in doing so you can either um, increase your rate of feeding or decrease it. I'm working here five years. Oh, well, there's a, a fellow working here for a, for a few months, and um, he was getting a job in, in Dublin. And uh, so then the, the Tony Tony needed a another man. Yeah. So uh, I was available at the time, and I, I got the, got the job. So there's just two of you at the start. Uh, myself and Tony. And there's how many now? Well, it's around 35 now. No. That's when they're averaging a night duty mail. Oh, it's, it's very, very healthy and the, and the work the work's very interesting to it. Well, this is the time of the year is when uh, when the harvesting's going on and when the young smolts are going to see. Well, the summer the summer's the, the the busiest time of the year because uh, you you're changing nets around around every two weeks. And there's a lot, a lot of feeding going on as well. I know the work's, the work's not really hard because uh, I've, I've been working myself in a, in a far, my own, my own, my own father's farm for since I was a young lad and a, I'm fairly used to the work. Well, the, work the work's very healthy and it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. We currently are employing 
approximately 40 people. It varies a little bit. At the moment we're harvesting. We have a lot of part-time people uh, on the staff. Um, we have five people here who are not locals, uh, who've come in from the outside. And uh, these, are, these are people with, with uh, well, uh, not absolutely specialist training, but a general training, scientific training, that um, would enable them to have maybe a greater level of understanding uh, of what's going on with the fish and the problems that the fish are facing. We don't have one fisherman or ex-fisherman on our permanent staff. Um, they're basically, I think their primary background would be a small farm background, which is a pretty good background really in terms of uh, giving the, these people a sort of pragmatic approach to the problems that face them in their job as in on the fish farm. The employment prospects in Norway, it's, an, it's reckoned that the average income of a worker on a salmon farm is twice that of the average Norwegian fisherman. And the Norwegian fisherman is quite well paid. He has much more stable operation than an Irish fisherman and his average is higher. But on the Norwegian salmon farms, it's just over twice. And that's a very significant thing. Those very small little fish you see um, are actually uh, intruders. They're um, pollock, or glasson as they're called locally. They in fact got into the nets as, as when they were very tiny and then uh, grow too big to, uh, to escape. So they kind of uh, live off the, the farm food. <laughs> so are they any use to you? No, no, they just, they're just dumped at the end of it. Take, for instance, if the, if the nets are raised too quickly, um, you'll notice, you would notice that um, all these bubbles start to form um, the higher the nets are raised up. This means that the, the fish are being crowded far too much and they're all trying to, um, to get down deeper. And uh, as they're doing this, um, they're emptying their swim bladders, which is, is uh, all fish have these swim bladders, which um, maintains their buoyancy in the water. So that's actually what you would see. It looks like a, a boiling cauldron when all the fish are trying to nose their way down as deep as they can. So this, this isn't very good for the fish. It puts them under stress. They can stop feeding for several hours after being uh, after undergoing this um, um, stress. We do have a problem. Um, uh, to, to a low level with seals. And how do they get into the cages? No, they don't get into the cages. What they do when they're cruising mm. past, uh, they sometimes bite the fish through the net. So they just kill one fish? Or yes, they kill maybe one or two fish. We d it's not a major problem. I heard of the case where one seal killed something like 1,200 fish in 48 hours. Uh, some, uh, well, it, was, it wasn't on our farm. <laughs> Um, we used to be very sensitive to, um, well, cormorants, herons and so on, but we have found by using nets of particular size mesh and uh, having structures that just simply weren't prone to predation, that these are no longer a problem. D did fish ever escape from your cages? Yes, uh, the occasional fish. Some, I, th I like to think that now fish escape 
far less than they used to. We change our nets regularly, we check our nets for holes. Um, but occasionally when the fish have been handled in large num numbers, it's inevitable that the odd fish slips overboard. Well, if, if, if a cage did get burst and the whole uh, cage full ex escaped, mm. could those salmon escape in the water? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. There, there has been evidence of... Uh, uh, in Scotland, there was a, a fish farm was pretty well destroyed by a, 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 a large factory ship coming off its moorings in a storm and it took a shortcut through the salmon farm and released the contents. And uh, these fish, uh, they must have been tagged, I suppose, but they were, some of them were subsequently caught uh, hundreds of miles away. So they migrated like so they, they, wild cotton? Yes, that's right. I mean, the farm fish are not so far removed from the wild fish in that uh, they've been bred. Uh, the one, the fish we're using, or the strains that we're using, uh, have been bred uh, for, you know, maybe a dozen generations. So it's not really, uh, they're not so far rem removed from the wild. And I'm quite sure they will, would revert to their old sort of um, instincts fairly quickly. If we walk up along here now, you can actually see uh, some of the guys uh, removing fish from the cages. They're harvesting out of cage number eight at the moment. They have a, a, a sort of raft the harvest raft drawn alongside the outer edge of the cage and there's a hydraulic winch um, operated and uh, they're lowering this um, large net into the cage removing the fish which are then tipped into a bin through which um, carbon dioxide gas is bubbling this anaesthetizes the fish. All the fish are tipped out onto the bleeding table. There are two guys. Uh, those two guys standing there with the with the knives are actually uh, bleeding the fish. They insert a knife in, under the um, the gill flap on the fish and cut through the gill bars. Um, this improves the quality of the, the product. The uh, bin load of fish is um, removed from the boat and uh, tipped onto the harvest table and the fish go a conveyor belt style up through the gutters and the cleaners, the graders and the packers. Well we like it all right, Dan and myself are cutting and the other four are washing. We do the washing. Cleaning. We we'll do three bands of fish before oh, the first clock. Break. 10 o'clock. Then we'll take a break at 10. 10, 15 minutes break. And then... We'll have a smoke then. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll laugh. And I'll laugh at our tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe six or seven bins between that and the next break. We're supposed to cut uh, three to the minute. That's supposed to be very quick. And can you cut them up any old way? No, you cannot. Well, They've got a wee bit of fat right up the centre. And you must cut dead centre of that, otherwise you'd go into the flesh. Well, you'd damage the fish and then he'd be second class. So no, he wouldn't go as superior fish then. It's white to both sides. And if you go into the flesh, well, you're cutting into the pink flesh of the salmon. So, and that's... It's easy known when you do damage. We do grading of the live fish later on in the year, from October up until near Christmas. 
That's out on the cages in the sea. You know, they're changed from one cage into another. And, and the men are doing that, and while they're doing that, we're counting. We've got a wee counter. counter. And we click each fish that goes through. Yeah, brown ones and silver ones and small ones. Three different grades. You just click them as they're going through. Uh, the fish are graded into either superior or ordinary. Um, most of them are superior. <laughs> but the any fish with the, with the slightest bruise or the slightest deformity is classified as an ordinary fish. It goes as an ordinary fish. Um, these fish are then graded according to size, two to three kilos, three to four, four to five, or whatever. And they are packed on ice in these special polystyrene boxes, which um, keeps the product fresh for 10 days. They're then dispatched to um, the continent and are redistributed throughout Europe. We do sell fish in Ireland. We do sell salmon in Ireland, uh, mainly in Dublin. Um, but when the wild fish come on the on stream, uh, we then export everything because we don't see any any sort of benefits in competing with the wild fish. Um, the wild fish, unfortunately, um, in the, they come in uh, for a short season in relatively large numbers, and thus it's difficult to avoid glut situations, and we try to avoid. We, we have the, the capacity to export, and so we avoid these glut situations. Well, just where do you export? Well, we export pretty well throughout Europe. We haven't as yet sent any of our fish to either the US or Japan, but this is a possibility uh, for the relatively near future. The smaller sizes go to France, Italy, uh, France is the main one. The larger fish go mainly to Germany, Switzerland, uh, Belgium, Holland. There are only few countries, two countries in the EEC, that produce a fish surplus. That's Denmark and Ireland. We have a fish surplus, and this is an important thing because all the other countries are importers. France imports about 25% of its fish. Britain imports half its fish. Germany imports 80% of its fish. And uh, other smaller countries in Europe, um, Holland, actually, Holland might is a fish importer as well as a fish exporter. So we're in a very good position as a, as a, a surplus producer. Uh, the trouble is we have distances to travel when we send our consignments abroad, and that often upsets our pricing. But nevertheless, um, the Danes and ourselves are, are surplus producers. And that puts an important position in relation to marketing. So yes. will the price of yes. fished, uh, farmed fish, will that fall and fall in coming years? Yes, it will fall as food gets cheaper and the problems are overcome. Just like bacon has fallen and is, it can be turned out as a great output by a fish. So will salmon be every man's fish? It could be every man's fish and it could be eaten like herring. But don't forget this. It's not the same fish. You're not eating something that tastes quite the same. Why is that? Because it hasn't fed on the things that the salmon feed on the sea in their natural life. They go to Greenland and they eat a little shrimp there, and that shrimp is very hard to get, and you can't, you can't simulate it. And that shrimp gives them the flavour in their lifestyle, which you don't get in the farm salmon. So, although, I mean, they look like salmon, they are salmon, still, they, there's something different in the flavour, and that's the important thing. I think there's always going to be 
um, a conservative attitude to, to a, as is seen, a relatively new product. Um, we're very proud of the quality that we're able to maintain in our product and uh, we get the top European wholesale prices. And I think you probably know how sort of particular uh, continentals are on not on their foodstuffs and the sort of hygiene and quality in general. And we're reasonably happy if we're able to get the best prices there. And we're getting positive responses on quite a few of these markets that they're demanding our fish in particular. Um, we feel that uh, this sort of answers the question on the, by itself. Will the wild salmon not always have a snob value? Yes, it will. It'll have a snob value. And I dare say that it'll continue to be caught in smaller quantities because we're overtaxing the stock at the moment. And there will be a certain snob value to it. Uh, but fewer and fewer people are going to be able to afford to pay for it, especially when they see the gap between the uh, farmed salmon and the wild salmon in price. And the popularity of salmon, or the popularization of salmon, is in fact what's going to be the main business for these fish farmers. Uh, the curves of production of European farm salmon, uh, which is primarily uh, Norwegian produce, uh, is quite uh, startling. But at the same time, we know in the marketplace that the supply of salmon uh, cannot meet the present demand by quite a considerable amount. Prices have been increasing over the last few years, and it's it's a, it looks quite good at the moment in terms of the market. But the growth and interest in salmon farming is moving very rapidly also. And uh, I think it's, it is uh, very likely that there will come a stage where the world market um, will maybe sort of start to be oversupplied and the price will come down. I'm sure of that. I'm sure maybe that is five, six years down the road.